So I think we're all treating this couple of days as a learning opportunity. Today we all learnt how to do extraordinary PowerPoint presentations. I'll be doing that next year. <laughs> Won't be happening today. Uh, so today I want to talk to you about the environment in which I work and, and many of the colleagues here work in uh, Brussels and in the Europe, other sites of the European institutions. Um, just as a vague overview, I sit in that blue box, that's the European Commission. Um, these are the other European institutions that exist around the place, but the European Commission is the largest. This is its very beautiful um, home building, the, the Berlin Mall building. Um, so the Commission, just to distinguish it from, from the other institutions, is responsible for the day-to-day -day running of uh, the European Union and for proposing and uh, ensuring the enforcement of EU laws. There are 28 European commissioners, one per member state. Uh, we tried to shrink that number so that we did, you know, cut it down a bit to make it a bit easier to get stuff done. But um, small countries, in particular one small country with which I'm particularly familiar, uh, <laughs> put a rock in the road to, to that change. So we still have 28 commissioners uh, at the moment. There are about 32,000 people work for the commission, uh, which sounds like a vast number, but apparently, so I'm told, it's the same as run the city of Manchester. <laughs> So the, the, the European Union is basically a tapestry of languages. There are 24 official languages which are represented here, each language in its language. Um, it makes it a complicated place to be. Uh, no EU rule becomes law until it has been translated into each of these 24 languages, including Maltese and Irish, even though there are small populations that speak those languages. All citizens are entitled to communicate with and receive information from the European Union in their own language. So if you want to write a letter to a Greek European commissioner in Croatian, you're allowed to do that. And he's supposed to write back to you in Croatian. Naturally, it takes a while. <laughs> because it goes through a few hoops. One of those hoops being the translation service. We've got one of the largest translation services in the world. <laughs> so I have about two and a half thousand translators with some more freelancers. Um, they do all of the, the translations of the written texts. Now, they, they're fairly strict in what they accept. They won't translate everything. And in fact, it's not appropriate to translate everything. But uh, certainly for every, any of the legal documents, they have to be translated into other languages. <laughs> There's also interpretation. We have one of the biggest, in fact, I think it's the biggest interpretation service in the world, which is where about 11,000 meetings a year are interpreted into all the languages. Uh, so all of the formations of the council, which is the, the ministers, so you'll have the finance ministers together or the transport ministers together or the environment ministers together, all of their meetings will be interpreted and the meetings in the European Parliament are too. So if you don't have um, a shared language, is it possible to have a shared culture? I think this is one of the biggest obstacles that we face in the European institutions that we're not all coming at it from the same angle. Um, and I think it's very difficult for us as communicators to try and get a message across because the impact on the end listener or reader diminishes if they're reading it in translation or if they're hearing a voice through interpretation. Um, I think this actively contributes to the um, lack of a European public sphere as it's sometimes referred to or distrust or distance 
between European leaders and politicians and, and the public out there. If you compare um, the engagement and the, the viewership of, say, the Obama State of the Union address, which I think the last one was, his, was the least viewed, but it still attracted 31.3 million people, and uh, President Juncker's annual address, which doesn't get that sort of <laughs> uh, You can see where the disparities come in, partly as a result of, of language. So how do, we, how do we try to do that? How do we try to reach an audience in all 28 EU countries? There's no real pan-EU journalists or press. Um, yeah, this, this is the crappy clip art that you know, he, was, he was telling us not to use. <coughs> Um, there's no, um, there, apart from say the Financial Times that you know a certain educated elite will read, there aren't any newspapers that everybody reads from Portugal to Poland. Um, people still rely on local and national and regional news sources for their information a, a great deal of the time. There's also language ability. Uh, it varies very dramatically across Europe, where you have uh, people who have a who profess to have a very decent working knowledge of, of English, say, is at about 60% in Sweden and at about 11% in Spain. So if you're trying to reach all of those people, it becomes very challenging. We also have a limited capacity to know everything that's going on on the ground. One um, example that uh, was in my working life a couple of weeks ago, so I work in the section that deals with the regulation of the financial sector and uh, that we have re relatively recent rules that came in about how to deal with banks when they're failing. So there was a bank failing in Portugal, and this, th this was the, one of the first times that we were applying these new rules, so we were being asked our opinion on how we thought the new rules were being applied in Portugal. <coughs> now, the incident arose where an investor in this bank was going to come in and rescue it, but the investor was a woman called Isabel dos Santos, now, if, I don't know if you've ever heard of Isabel dos Santos. She's one of the richest women in Africa. She's the daughter of the president of Angola. And if I say the words diamond and blood, you might have some suspicion as to where she gets her money from. So we were being asked whether it was appropriate for this bank to be bailed out by this very dodgy African uh, dictator's daughter. You can't know the sensitivities of that. We, sitting in Brussels, didn't know really that Isabel dos Santos was involved in this bank and how this was going to have repercussions for you know, European-African relations. And it, it, it generally can take on a life of its own that you can't always be aware of. Portuguese people would have been perfectly aware of this because of the historical ties between Portugal and Angola. But sometimes we have a difficulty in, in bridging that gap. Our solution is to do a few things. We translate all of our press releases into all of the national languages. We have um, uh, a representation in each national capital and in, cert in certain regional capitals. So they are able to then try and link the headquarters with the, the target audience. They can talk to the press locally and regionally. Uh, that, that, is, that is a good interlinkage between what we're doing in, in Brussels and what happens on the ground. And we also have a daily press briefing for national journalists who are located in Brussels to inform them about new policies, things that are going on. But the, the daily press briefing is an unusual thing in the world. Apparently, it's, I had an Australian journalist writing about it once who said that it was one of only two he was familiar with, the other being the White House daily press briefing. So it's, it's a good access for journalists to get first-hand information on, on what is being proposed, what's, what's going on um, in, in Brussels. 
But the, the daily press briefing can have challenges of its own. I just want to uh, share one of them with you. Technology, please. Always fabulous. Okay. Uh, all members of the family uh, do not travel necessarily to the same places, but they are all members of the family and they have the same view of the world. I want to come back to your statement about the family, which I find interesting. Uh, do you really believe that uh, the family has the same views on uh, global issues as you said? Uh, <laughs> understanding your interpretation of my understanding <laughs> in interpretation of how you understand what I just said. <laughs> what we just said. <laughs> so that's um, Margarita Skinas. He's the chief spokesperson for the commission. He's Greek speaking in English to a Bulgarian journalist. That's pretty much the day-to-day -day workings of uh, the European Commission. Having said that, uh, working in Brussels, it has to be said that English has become the lingua franca. Uh, it's, the, it's the daily working language in, I would say, all of the meetings that I go to, bar a few where you know, French, is, if French is dominant. But there's only about 5% of the employees of the Commission are British or Irish, whereas 95% of the documents are produced in English. And almost, as I said, almost all of the meetings are in English. This came gradually over time, but certainly um, with the various expansions of the European Union, it has become more uh, prominent. The, this is a picture of, I don't know whether you can see the shades of, of green, which was the post-2004 accession uh, countries. Um, so certainly w when Austria and uh, Sweden and Finland joined in 95, that was one big bang for the increased use of English. And then again with uh, the large expansion to mostly Eastern European countries in 2004. As a result, as a politician or as a policymaker, uh, speaking English well has become a bit of a policy imperative. I want to share with you two of the European commissioners um, who have, it has to be said, varying mastery of the English language and how it works to their favour or disfavour. You get my point. <laughs> this, this man, Gunther Oettinger, he's a very experienced politician in Germany. And uh, Patrick can maybe clarify, but apparently in German, he's quite engaging and convincing. In English, 
unfortunately, he's just not. And I think this works to in, in not in his favour. Compare this with another uh, member of the European Commission, Dan's boss. Uh, <laughs> who presented uh, the title of this conference as the crisis and crisis, and uh, I know that uh, I'm a little bit late this time. It was not not due to the previous obligations, but simply the uh, the plane uh, arriving a little bit later. And I know that very soon I will compete uh, for the attention with the introductory news about Bayern and Barcelona. And uh, therefore, allow me to do something unusual. As, of course, as a commissioner, I have I have a speech ready, but I will try to do something something else. I will just focus <laughs> on the questions the organizers uh, proposed. Uh, we should just give the answers. It wasn't my speech. And the first thing <laughs> <laughs> So you can see, this is Maros Sefcovic. He, he's the commissioner in charge of energy uh, policy, the vice president, excuse me, in charge of energy policy. Um, he has a different way of engaging with the audience. He, he talked about the fact that his plane was late. He talked about the fact that there was a Bayern Munich game on afterwards. This, this conference was in, in Munich. Um, so he was relating to the audience, relating to this, the, this, the scene in which he found himself a different way of communicating. And I, and I think his ability to do so in English helps him further the policy down uh, the way that he, he wants to, to achieve it. So, so how does this affect us who work behind the scenes for these kinds of guys? Um, I think the, the main issues are who's writing, so who, who among us is, is doing the writing, who's doing the speaking, and who's doing the listening. Um, the, the examples that I will give, they cover speech writing mainly, but it could also be the case for, say, somebody writing the notes that you have to give to a commissioner when he's going into a negotiation or going in to meet uh, an industry lobbyist. Um, the last time I checked, of the speechwriters to the 28 commissioners, about 16 were British or Irish. Now, bearing in mind that there's only 5% of the staff there is British or Irish. And uh, the others have either studied or worked in an English-speaking environment. So that goes to show that they kind of take it seriously, that they generally will try to use uh, somebody with a, a good mastery of English to, to help do their communication. And we have to then take into account the context in which we find ourselves. Is it, as is my commissioner, is, the, is Lord Hill, the British commissioner, an English native speaker speaking to an, a native English speaking audience? In this case, I think you know, you're more in your, like in your national setting. Um, you're, you can be comfortable, you have shared cultural references, you can know what's a taboo and what's not a taboo. Um, you can speak relatively quickly, you can use euphemism. You have shared historical references. You can refer to the same children's TV shows if you want to. You will know whether it's appropriate to refer to your family life or your, 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 your partner. Um, all of those make it easier to, to engage, to have the audience engage with you. A few from uh, my boss's recent speeches were that he said he was going to grasp the nettle. He was anchoring a development in something. He said, he's, I, I've worked with various Sir Humphreys over the years. You know, that, that was fine for an audience that got that. But you know, he wouldn't have been able to use some of those references elsewhere. The next one is for where you have 
him, a native English speaker, speaking to a multilingual audience, which is by far more common. He then has to sort of reduce the breadth of his vocabulary and not use euphemism or colloquial phrases. Um, the statistics vary, but I'm told that a native speaker will have between <laughs> 10 and 20,000 words to avail of in, in his vocabulary, whereas a proficient second language speaker will only have up to about 1,500. So you're automatically shrinking by a factor of 10 the, the breadth of vocabulary that you can draw on to express yourself. Um, I've, I've been told that multilingual audiences, non-native English-speaking audiences, have a real problem with contractions. So they just don't hear the difference between can and can't. So when you're writing the speech, you have to write cannot. That I cannot accept that we will, whatever. Whereas um, it might be more natural for a native English speaker to use the contraction with, with the can't. Um, and you then have to break down your analysis of, is this an audience in London or in Brussels or in Frankfurt or somewhere where they're used to hearing English? That's one category. Then when you go on visits to, to the, the countries, that will be a totally different audience again because you know, people that are in Lisbon listening to Portuguese all day long, they have a, a fair understanding of English, but they don't hear it much. You're going to have to go more slowly with them. You're going to have to use a different register with them. So it has to be adapted to the audience. I think the, the speed of delivery is, is fairly crucial. It has to be slowed down. And I know as an Irish person, I'm, I'm very, very fast myself. But if it can be compensated by the energy of delivery, the tone of delivery, maybe with props if necessary, I think that, that helps keep the audience uh, on board. <clears throat> then a final category is the, the non-native speaker, so Mr. Oettinger and Mr. Shevchevich, to a non-native audience. Again, complicated. Um, Fergal can tell you some stories about having written for his previous commissioner who needed, what was it, sentences of eight words or less or something like this. Basically, you're having to pare it down to the bare minimum. Um, sentence length is an issue, also the length of the speech as a whole. You're not going to be wanting to put him in a position where he has a, you know, a 30 minute speech to give to somebody who doesn't understand him. There are lots of complications that arise with this. Um, there was uh, somebody told me about a, a German speaker. He was talking about transport policy, and he said, "Yes, you're, you're the commission. Your transport policy is, is on the woodway." And everyone was like, oh, "What's on the woodway?" It was a literal translation of "auf dem Holzweg," which is on the wrong track. And he thought he was being really witty because he was, you know, using a transport-related uh, pun, but it was the wrong one. So, <laughs> but people got stuck on that, you know. The same with uh, Joop den Oel. Our Dutch, our Dutch colleagues will know the Joop den Oel example of, in the Netherlands, we are a nation of undertakers. Uh, the ondernemen being entrepreneurs, but it, it being, um, it, was, it was mistranslated. But people get fixated on that, and then they don't listen to the context of the speech. There's like these brain stoppers. Um, pronunciation can be an issue. I had an, uh, an example of a former Swedish um, prime minister when he was introducing the priorities of the Swedish presidency of the EU, it was going to be jobs, jobs, jobs. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there are things to watch out for. A further issue is interpretation. 
So in most of these contexts, particularly in the parliament where each of the speeches is being interpreted into various languages and maybe chain interpreted, so you could have a Finnish speaker who's translated into English and the English would be then translated into Greek because you don't have somebody who has Finnish and Greek in the translation booth. Um, you have to give them the texts in advance, give the interpreters the texts in advance, so they at least can familiarise themselves briefly with the jargon. They might have been doing fisheries policy in the morning and dealing with bank capital rules in the afternoon, so they don't necessarily know the terminology that you're uh, using. Um, there was a, a famous example is was in an agriculture committee discussion in '91, where um, uh, there was a French chairman of the committee and a another French MEP who had helped reach a, a solution to this problem that they were facing. And the French chairman of the committee said, uh, je vous salue pour la sagesse normande. The, so the, the interpreter said, and now we have been saved by Norman wisdom. <laughs> Norman wisdom to the uninitiated was a British comedian in the 1950s. <laughs> One last point I wanted to share with you is about structure is taking into account that other cultures, other languages, have various different approaches to structure. When I, when I used to give uh, clear writing courses, one of them was with a bunch of people who deal with development aid in Latin America. And uh, their director was giving out that he just didn't get the point of their notes. Like, he didn't understand what he was being asked to approve or sign off on, or they were informing him of something, or he, they wanted him to do something. So he wanted to have some clear writing training done. And the biggest issue we came up against with all of these Spanish and Portuguese speakers was they wanted to build from a historical context, give you the story, and then explain at the very end what they wanted you to do. Whereas in an English structure, we would want the main point in the first paragraph. So that if the director chooses to read the four pages, he can, but he already knows from the first paragraph what he's being asked to set out. And it became quite a heated discussion to change their mindset to present things in this way. They, they did, and we were invited back for three other sections of that, of that department because it was so successful. But it, it becomes an issue that you have to take into account that people are coming at it from a different uh, mindset. So I think that's basically it. Humour is tricky. Um, don't know whether anyone recognises this. April Vicious or Poisson d'Avril, very popular in French-speaking countries and in Belgium. On the 1st of April, kids cut out little paper fishes and stick it to people's backs. They think it's hilarious. <laughs> the first time my kids did this, I was like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> but to them, it's, it's, it's a shared reference. It's a, it's a humorous thing to do. But if, if you're on, giving a speech on the 1st of April and you refer to this in a French-speaking environment, it'll go down a treat. If you do it in this environment, nobody will know what the hell you're talking about. So be careful with humour, because you don't know if it's going to be humorous in that context. So 28 countries, 24 languages, it's kind of complicated. English is the main language of communication, but there are varying levels. There are various um, tones that are being used. So once again, it all comes back to know your speaker, know your audience, and apply the rules effectively. Thank you.